The 20th century English-American philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once famously said, all of philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Though a highly contested claim, no matter where you land on it, the quote does at least cause one to consider the inescapable presence of Plato. Who was this follower of Socrates who founded a school after which schools across the globe are still named today, the Academy? And why is it that he's considered among the trinity of foundational philosophers in the Western world? Did he simply ride the coattails of his great teacher Socrates, pulling from him most of the theories he is well known for today? Or is Plato truly a giant among philosophers? Unquestionably, Plato's influence lives on today. His great work, The Republic, is a masterclass in philosophical thinking and methodology, and one of the most widely read works of philosophy. His account of the death of Socrates preserved for us the story of the man who would ultimately be seen as the founder of Western philosophy. Yet despite the acknowledgement of his influence on philosophy, some dismiss his theories as antiquated and out of touch for our current context. Join us today as we explore the question, who was Plato? Hello and welcome to Open Door Philosophy. I'm your host, Derek Parsons. Joining me from the world of forums is the ideal, Mr. Andrew Graziano. Hello. Andrew, how's it going? I think you're uh, either in the middle of or have just recently survived midterms. Yep, yep. I am strictly right in the middle of midterms right now. I'm just cranking out these papers, you know. This, this, <laughs> next, this next week I have... Too many essays due. An essay for every class due. Two due tomorrow, two due on two due on Friday. We record on Sundays. So that's a lot of fun, but it's going <laughs> to be great. It's going to be awesome. Mr. Parsons, I guess the nine weeks is almost over. I think they do it, it, do it like that. So I'm assuming you're almost or going to be in the middle of some grading soon. How's that going? Oh, that's been most of my morning before we've recorded. Yeah, the uh, end of the first quarter is coming. And that is essays. And so, yeah, I've been cranking them out this week and I have another uh, stack from a year, my year two course to grade next week before the weekend arrives and I must post grade. So, yeah, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of grading, but that's OK, because yeah, tell, yeah, tell me about tell me about how like it changes from um, like year one to year two for for like the essays and such, because I'm in this class that a lot of graduate students take for philosophy. Mm. And I was really surprised that they shorten their essays. They make the essay shorter than uh, my undergrad classes. And I thought that was really interesting. And they get really mad. Like if you go over a word, they're like, <laughs> well, you could you could write 500 words or you could have 501, but why not just have 500? Your words aren't that important. So I'm curious, how, how's it, what's the difference like there? Oh, man, I'd be all for 500-word essays. Are you serious? 500-word essays in graduate class? No, well, it's it's a little bit longer than that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what can you say in 500 words? <laughs> well, the difference between year one and year two essays is that the year two students largely know what they're doing and have a, a wider <laughs> conception and grasp of philosophy as a whole. So their references that they make are much more informed and connective across philosophy as a whole. So it's just a broader perspective. Uh, that just makes for a richer paper. The year one students, God bless them. I mean, everyone's a year one student at some point. Right now, especially in this first quarter, it's just, we're just trying to uh, 
you know, identify philosophers and theories and say something analytical about them and, and you know, working on justifying claims and, and knowing when you need to do that. Uh, that that's kind of what we're doing right now. So it's really a lot of fun with you too, because their entire repertoire of philosophers and theories is quite large and and they know generally how to write a decent essays. So yeah, there's the difference. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. I bet I bet it's more fun for fun for you reading them and more fun for them writing them too. So well, it's so less corrective, that's for sure. <laughs> that's yeah, good. a lot that's of a lot of the year one essays I, I write often. What do you mean by this? That's <laughs> like I don't even I don't even write anymore. It's just an abbreviation. <laughs> w D Y M-B-T. I write that over and over and over. What do you mean by this? Clarify. I feel like I still get those comments too. So well, sure. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess, I guess I'm still a year one student at heart too. Oh, no, no, uh, no. Well, I mean, it happens with year two as well, but like the, yeah, it's just different. Yeah, just I different. get it. There's a higher quality. So we come kind of to the middle of our series with everyone's favorite thing to play with, but not to eat, philosopher, Plato. Uh, We don't know too much about Plato's early life, except what other historians kind of from later times and snippets that we get from his own writings uh, tell us about Plato. But we do know that he was probably born of an aristocratic family that was moderately to very wealthy, probably very wealthy. And we can kind of infer this because Plato, like many of the followers of Socrates, had the ability to even follow Socrates around all day. They weren't having to go work. They weren't having to go. They weren't having to go toil all day. He was able to go follow Socrates around. Something else we know about Plato is that he probably wanted to be a lyric poet or a tragedian at the beginning of his life or when he was relatively young, not when he was like an infant or something, but probably before he met Socrates, he wanted to be a tragedian. And he might've even studied with some of the great lyric poets or, or some, something of the such. He ended up studying philosophy. And I think that's, that was pretty much due to Socrates. He thought Socrates was a pretty cool dude and started to want to follow him, but we can still really see Plato is not just a great philosopher. He's a really great writer. And we can see that that skill in writing just all the way throughout his works. It's it's a really fun time to read Plato. Plato has two brothers who are often talked about in the dialogues, most famous in the Republic. Plato mentions uh, Glaucon in Book Two of the Republic, who in our Ring of Gyges episode we talked about where Glaucon is challenging Socrates' idea that justice being good for the self. He also has a brother in that same dialogue named Adamantus, who's also challenging Socrates throughout the Republic, but they're all followers of Socrates too. Uh, they're challenging him in kind of a, a spirited way. I think he has a few more brothers too, but I think they might be half-brothers or something. The last thing that I want to say is that Plato's name, Plato might be a nickname, uh, for Plautus, which is a word in Greek meaning like broad or broad shoulders or something like that, broad chest or broad shoulders. Or some people even said that Plato might have had a, 
a wide forehead. Seneca wrote that Plato's name was given that because he had a very broad chest. So that probably wasn't his real name. I think they believe that Plato's real name was Aristocles. There's been a lot of sculptures and such that depict Plato as kind of like a wrestler or or something too, um, because the idea that he's broad, broad shoulders probably worked out, wrestled like all all young aristocrats. Uh, So that's all I have to say about the biography. Mr. Parsons, do you want to add anything else? Yeah, a few more things about his early life. So his birth and death dates are slightly contested, but only by a year or two. So we're not going to get into the nuance of that. And we'll just say he was born in 428 and died in 347 BCE. So what that means is, as far as his connection with Socrates, Socrates died in 399 BC. So if we subtract when Socrates died to when uh, Plato dies, Plato lived 52 years after Socrates died. So that means Plato had a, a great deal of time to write the things that he wrote. His career was very long after the massive influence of Socrates. So that's one thing to, to note. And, and I guess if we do the reverse with math, that means Plato was probably around 30 or so when Socrates was put to death, which means you know, in his 20s uh, is that really influential time for Plato with his exposure to Socrates. And like Andrew said, there's not a whole lot as far as his background goes that we really know of. Important, I suppose, is that, as was mentioned in the previous episode with Socrates, the, uh, how are they called, Andrew? The 30 tyrants? 30 tyrants, right? yes. Yeah the, yeah, the rule of the 30 tyrants. Plato was, was coming of age during time of the, the oligarchy, that is the reign of the 30 tyrants. And that influences him, obviously. But a few other things. There's some letters from, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce names, uh, but there's some letters from other, other Greeks uh, that we have that talks about Plato as a boy, and they describe him as being very quick of mind and, and modest, hardworking, and, and just loving study. So there's a, a little glimpse, anyway, of, of the youthful Plato, and as far as influences go, really, there, there's a couple of pre-Socratic philosophers that have, I mean, you can see their theories echoed in his world of forms concept, which we'll get into, of course, in this episode. But uh, two of those philosophers we featured in our episode on who are the pre-Socratics, and that's Heraclitus and Parmenides, very influential, and, and combine that with Pythagoras, which we didn't include with the pre-Socratics, but he is a pre-Socratic, and Kind of the reason we didn't include him is because I thought there was too much to talk about with Pythagoras to fit into that particular episode. But taking these three philosophers together and and that sort of metaphysical tradition that that they established really strongly influences Plato and his conception of reality and the world of forms. Let me say one more thing, too. When I found out about this, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, But we often think about Plato's middle life when he's writing or teaching at the academy. But near the end of his life, Plato reached out to, he engaged in some letters with the brother or something of the king of Syracuse, Mm. where uh, the king of Syracuse's name was uh, Dionysus, not to be confused with the god Dionysus. But Plato became, or one of Dionysus's, like his brother-in-law, really liked Plato and invited him to try to make his ideal republic on 
in the city of Syracuse. And Plato was really excited. He went to Sicily and the tyrant was not happy. Dionysus, he was a tyrant, wasn't really a big fan of Plato. And he turned against him and sold him into slavery. But Plato was, he wasn't a slave for too long. Someone bought his freedom and allowed him to go back home where he went back home and died around the age of 81 or 82 years old. And the legend is like, it's born on the same day as he was born. But mm, yeah, um, I read that. Another thing too, is that uh, after Socrates died, I'm pretty sure Plato went all around like the Mediterranean, like going to study with a lot of different philosophers and sophists throughout the Mediterranean world. And some later Christian philosophers and, and saints thought he might have met with some biblical prophets and figures such as Jeremiah uh, and Egypt and such, which I think is pretty cool. I don't know how true that is, but um, I think it's it's interesting enough. But there's definitely this like huge, huge myth around just the life of Plato in general, almost yeah. as much as there is about Socrates, but Plato's is just a little bit more documented, but it's so mythic too. Yeah. Um, we don't know too much for certain. We just kind of know he was rich. We know that he did some work. We know he was a follower of Socrates. And then the rest is probably speculation. Well, speaking of the Abrahamic faiths and Christianity, which of course was not around when Plato was alive, but there's also, you know, it made me think of this, there's a great deal of scholarship written on the influence of Platonism on the development of early Christianity in the first couple of centuries AD. And it's just interesting, uh, a tie-in, you, you might be able to pick up on some of those similarities as we as we go through his works. And I guess the last thing to mention, can't believe we hadn't thought of this. I mean, I guess it's not background necessarily, but uh, just as Plato was the follower of Socrates, Plato had a very famous student, and that would have been Aristotle, who will be the subject of our next episode in this Who Were They series. <laughs> I guess kind of in a genealogical way, although not biological. Uh, Socrates <laughs> begat Plato, and Plato begat Aristotle. So there we go. Famous student. Hey, maybe you'll be my Aristotle, Andrew. That'd be pretty cool. Yes. <laughs> Although I have to become a Plato first. <laughs> better, you better start writing. Oh, man. I feel the, the weight of <laughs> pressure, responsibility. <laughs> Let's move on to some of Plato's ideas. Yeah, it's going to be hard, I guess, for let listeners, it's going to be kind of hard to uh, cover everything about Plato. Well, certainly we're not going to cover everything about Plato and his, <laughs> his theories. There's no way. We would need like an entire podcast just dedicated strictly to that. But it's going to be really hard to sort of move through all this information about Plato in a systematic way. Here's really the topics we're going to be discussing, and they may all just sort of blend together. But what was Plato's philosophical project? Like, what was he mainly concerned with? What are his major theories, like the really well-known ones? What were his major works? Then, of course, the eternal question of, like, where does Socrates end and Plato begin? So that's what we'll be talking about for the majority of this episode. I guess let's just get going. Let's try to identify exactly what his philosophical project was. What was the thing that things that really occupied him, uh, his philosophical thinking throughout his life? Let's identify one project first that people probably won't think about. 
which is just kind of this more uh, memorialization of Socrates, mm. of his teacher, of someone who's very important of, to him, uh, memorializing him and his five five early dialogues that we talked about last week with Socrates and kind of preserving his legacy. We can assume that was probably one of his philosophical projects just because he spent so much time and he continued to use Socrates as a mouthpiece. Um, a second one, which is an important philosophical model, this theory of forms that he kind of posits that make up the I don't want to use ontological and epistemological, but um, <laughs> they make up how things are in the world and how things, how we come to know things, everything in the world, the epistemological and ontological basis for everything in the world, no matter if that's like I have a paper cup in front of me and anything from that physical to something like a concept, like a number two or something, he's putting this idea forms this theory out so it's an explanation of how we can come to know about this paper cup in front of me but also how the paper cup actually exists in the world so that's another big one do you want to talk more about that yeah well i mean i think and this could be not an accurate read on my part you've read more plato than i have but it seems to me that the more that i read plato the more I realize that most of his philosophy in one way or another is an expression of the world of forms or in that entire concept that we call Platonism. Am I right on that? Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I, it? I only know, I think a lot of it. I've, I haven't really read much late Plato, so I don't, I don't know too much about that. I've read a lot of early and a lot of middle Plato, but in late Plato, it could be completely different. Yeah. Uh, and I think it might be. But at least in the uh, middle and early-ish, er, early-ish times, there, it is a lot of connection with the world of forms because he does think it's a grounding for everything, even even his theories. He thinks those theories are true because they're built upon an accurate understanding of the world of forms. So it is it is very foundational. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's trying to answer what is really the nature of reality. Like you said, like, you know, that the big fancy word is epistemological, right? How do we know what we know and why do we know it and and how do we know it? And without diving too deeply into that, I think probably the best way to go forward is to talk about the world of forms and then kind of unpack some of the other things that are related to it, which, which are most of his major theories. But before I do that, you mentioned two things. You mentioned dialogues and you mentioned the five dialogues and that Plato is a mouthpiece for Socrates in some ways. So let's kind of talk about his methodology and his major works and how he went about doing that before we dive into the theory of of the world of form. So you've already mentioned one, uh, and that's the five dialogues that chronicle Socrates' death. We've talked about those in multiple episodes. I never have heard those five dialogues called anything specific other than five dialogues. Are you aware of a title? No, no, I'm not. I've, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever, I think they're most commonly called the five dialogues. Yeah. Like you can go on Amazon or whatever and type in, uh, you know, the, the death of Socrates and, and sometimes companies like Penguin or, or whoever will take those five dialogues and, and put them together in a, in one volume and, and call it like the death of Socrates or the trial and death of Socrates. But 
really they're, they're five connected but individual dialogues. And how do dialogues function, Andrew? How does Plato use dialogues in his methodology of philosophy? Yeah, that's an important notion for understanding Plato. It changes in the early dialogues when he's categorizing Socrates. So in these five dialogues, Socrates, who's the mouthpiece, is never presenting an argument, really. He's just testing people. He's never positing a world of forms idea or anything like that. He's just trying to learn things. And we talked a little bit about this last week, how Socrates will go up to someone, ask them a question, go up to someone who's a self-purported expert or who's someone, a lot of people, but they're always self-purported experts on things. He goes up to them and asks them a crucial question on a topic in their area of expertise. And we'll call that question, question A. And then he'll ask them a series of questions that will lead them to usually come to a conclusion that's not A. And so an expert can't hold that a thing is true and false at the same time. And so he's proving that they're not an expert, really. And so that's how we, we see all of these five dialogues. And these five dialogues are the Euthyphro, the Apology, the Crito, the Minnow, and the Phaedo. So that's how we see Socrates in these early dialogues. Now, in the, his later dialogues, where Plato's own thoughts are probably picking up, this dialogue method changes where it, it does still include this kind of testing on Socrates' behalf, where he is, goes up to an expert, like the Republic. He'll go up to an expert and he'll question him on an important question. And then when that expert kind of fails, when he shows that he believes A and not A at the same time, when the expert fails to produce something that's worthwhile, Socrates might try to show something too in that or, or pick up where that expert's testimony kind of left off. And then another interlocutor, maybe one of Socrates' followers, will start to argue with Socrates on his idea. They'll enter a dialogue and they will test Socrates' theory, and it will usually be right. Something important, too, with, with all of these dialogues is when we come in, there has to be an agreement on both sides of the table between the two people having the dialogues. And this is really important. Both people have to be kind of honest and willing to engage in the dialogue. And that's just important because not we need to separate some of Plato's dialogues who the interlocutors aren't wanting to be honest and open and, and willing to have the dialogue too. And I think in, in those cases, Plato is trying to show us that when we are engaging in philosophy, we need to be honest and open. And when we're having these conversations with others, they need to come from a place of being honest and open. Because so uh, Plato, excuse me, really doesn't like the idea of these sophists. He, he really wants to try to navigate truth. And that's very much picking up from where Socrates left off. Yeah, so you've mentioned the five dialogues, you've mentioned the Republic, and I guess the, the last thing, well, I don't know if it's the last one, I, I'm trying to identify like his major works that most people would know or be interested in reading, and I guess the, the last one to add to that is the Symposium, Yeah, where it's a dialogue where Socrates and a number of famous Athenians of the day get together for an evening of wine and discussion about the topic of love. And if I'm correct, it's also the first mention of a 
woman philosopher in Western philosophy. Dao Tima is in that dialogue. Yeah. She is not present at the symposium, but Socrates relays a discussion uh, he had with her and comments greatly on her wisdom and intelligence. So that one deals with love, and a lot of people have questions about love. It's a very existential type of question. So the symposium is typically a pretty popular one as well. You've mentioned uh, that Socrates is featured in just about every platonic dialogue. And the question always comes up, and we've addressed it a little bit in other episodes, but the question always comes up like, so if Socrates is always featured in the dialogues and Plato is never featured in the dialogues, who's really doing the talking here? Is Plato really just relaying everything that his great teacher had taught him and Plato doesn't have really that many original philosophical thoughts? Uh, is there some place where Socrates ends and Plato begins? Or is this uh, is all of this really just Plato's original thought and his way of presenting it is to use his his great mentor, Socrates? That's a good question. And I will be purposely vague because there's no clear answer on where Socrates starts and or where Socrates ends and Plato begins, rather. But we can be quite certain that Socrates does end at a point and, and Plato does begin. And when I reference Plato's uh, early and middle periods and later periods, that was a reference to the influence of Socrates had on Plato. And Plato's early period, almost all of his work is is pretty much, we can think, pretty much straight from Socrates. In his middle period, we see some influence, but Plato's own ideas are starting to take off. And Plato's later periods, we can see almost a total difference, total break fundamentally between Socrates and, and Plato's ideas. And, and we can kind of differentiate these periods. And again, those periods are hazy because of the ideas in them, how different they are from each other, how contradictory they might be, right? Like, and just an example that we've been talking about in, in the five, five early dialogues, Socrates says that he's never going to posit an idea at all. He's never going to bring forward an idea. His whole purpose is to question people. But mm -hmm. in the Republic, we see clearly Socrates is, is putting forward this idea about the perfect city, the perfect soul, and things of that nature. So when we see these contradictions, that's where we can see some kind of break and in beginning and in in some kind of ending, but the, the line is very hazy. So one thing we've talked about a, a lot, Buster Parsons, is the world of forms with Plato. And, but I don't think we've ever really gone in depth and really discussed and, and talked about that. So can you give a little explanation on what we mean when we say the world of forms? Yeah, this is certainly Plato's probably broadest and, and most well-known theory. And like I said earlier, it just seems to permeate a majority of his, especially middle period, if not early period. And also sometimes like if you look this up, you may hear it presented in slightly different ways. Uh, I've seen the realm of forms, but it always has to do with forms. So let me explain what the world of forms is by example, and then we'll kind of have a better understanding. So essentially, there are two realms. There's the realm that we live in, the realm that we exist in with our senses. And then there is another realm, 
outside of our senses that contains what Plato called the perfect forms. Now, to be very simplistic about it, and this is how Plato starts out, we talk about horses. And this is where I I mentioned the influence of Heraclitus, who, if you recall from the pre-Socratic episodes, Heraclitus claimed that everything always changes, everything is always in flux. So let's take the idea, or not the idea, but let's take a horse. Most people are familiar with horses. They've seen horses either in person or on TV or movies. And we know that there's lots of different types of horses. There's Clydesdales, there's Appaloosas, there's black horses, there's brown horses, there's white horses, there's all kinds of different horses and different sizes, right? There's war horses, you know, famously have broad chests and are very strong. And and for labor, there's race horses that are sleek and slender for speed. and, And you even have miniature horses, you know, all kinds of different horses. And we also know that horses come into existence, they're born. And we know that horses decline in their health over time, just like any other animal. And, uh, and eventually horses die. And horses can have all kinds of different qualities, a long mane, a short mane, a, a, a limp in their gait, all kinds of things. And so Plato asks, so, so how do we know what a horse is? If all of these traits that we're talking about, about horses, are different from horse to horse, how do we know what a, a horse is? How do we define what a horse is? And earlier I said, like, you know, a lot of Plato's project is about what is the nature of reality? How can we know what we know? Or how do we know what we know? So how do we know this horse? And the idea is here is that somewhere out there in the realm of forms, in the world of forms, there is a perfect horse. And our soul, which comes from the world of forms, our soul knows those forms within. And when we see a horse, we are reminded of the perfect horse. And that's how we know what a horse is, the ideal form of a horse. That's a very quick and basic explanation. Sometimes I also explain it with like cookies, gingerbread cookies. You know, you think of a, a, a cookie cutter. And you roll out the dough and you cut out the little gingerbread men with the original dye or the cookie cutter. And that's always the same. That's the ideal form. But when you cook and or when you bake the cookies, ah, they can end up in all kinds of different ways. Overcooked, undercooked, air bubbles. You know, an arm might break off when you're getting it off the cookie sheet. But there's an ideal form of the gingerbread man. And that's, that's the cookie cutter, right? And so it's a very basic explanation of the world of forms. But then, of course, Plato takes this much farther than just simple things like horses and rocks and trees and stuff like that. And we get into ideas such as justice or beauty or love or in the form of good and the virtues, right? So there's a perfect form of courage. There's a perfect form of moderation. So all of these are higher forms which ultimately ascend to the highest form, which is the good. And the good, everything ascends to the good. Uh, And the good is just such a perfect form, you can define it by no other frame of reference than just the good. So that is the world of forms crash course. (laughs) How'd I do, Andrew? Give me a grade. I think you did pretty good. We'll talk in Aristotle, if we remember, about a criticism to the world of forms, but... Here's something I will say, and that I, I've, I've been thinking about a lot while apparently a lot of mathematicians, like most professional mathematicians, still believe in numbers and in math as this 
platonic idea. Like they think yeah. numbers are numbers are platonic, and it and it really makes sense. Especially, I think when we're thinking about like physical things, like a a horse or something like that, it's it's easy to be kind of skeptical. But when we start thinking about things like non-physical topics like numbers or, or even ethical theories about what's right and wrong or even beauty, all of these abstract things, the idea of form seems more compelling, especially for numbers. Like what is the number two? Um, what, it, <laughs> what is the number three? Uh, three is a prime number. We know that. We know all these properties about the number three, but we don't really know what three is, but we know what three is enough to talk about it. We know what three is enough to describe it. We know that three will never be an even number. We know that the number three will probably exist even after humans and the earth is destroyed. We can imagine a world where there is no humans where three exist, right? Yeah. So it's an interesting idea and a lot more compelling than when I first learned about it. I, I kind of took it for granted, but I think there's something there. Well, and your mentioning of mathematics takes me back again to some of his Plato's influences. And one was Pythagoras. And Pythagoras was the one who came up, well, of course, the Pythagorean theorem but came up with this entire mathematical system to explain reality. And so Pythagoras kind of saw that as the, the form underneath the forms, right? The, the true nature of a thing could be explained with formulas and mathematics, and that's all abstract. And even a religion sprang up around Pythagoras. They were called the Pythagoreans. And this concept of like these forms or mathematics explain the nature of reality. Uh, and that these things are, are worthy of worship, right? Which sounds kind of silly, but I get it. I get, yeah. you know, when you talk about this this uh, reality that we see with our sensory perception, uh, and you think of like physics and how uh, the theoretical physics explains a great deal of our reality with mathematics. So anyway, yeah, yeah, that definitely a nod to his his predecessor there, Pythagoras. For sure. So how do we see the world of forms take shape in <laughs> in his philosophy and a lot of his major theories or or, uh, or thought experiments that he's well known for? Yeah, the most obvious or best way to get into this theory of forms is, is from the allegory of the cave, where this might be a kind of spelling out or a really good illustration of what Plato thought about the forms and how how we're really related to the world of forms. So, uh, refer back to our second episode, Allegory on the, of the Caves, for a more complete explanation. But Yeah, so the Allegory of the Cave, by the way, which is, it was the second episode we recorded, and it remains our most listened to episode. I think that must have something to do with probably students are studying it, and they Google Allegory of the Cave. <laughs> but nonetheless, it remains our most popular episode. Anyway, Allegory of the Cave is, and I'm going to say it as briefly as I can. Just go listen to episode two. <laughs> but the allegory <laughs> of the cave is there's these prisoners in the bottom of a cave and they are looking at shadows in the wall and they don't realize it, but the shadows are not reality, but they think it's reality. There's puppet people behind them with shapes of trees and shapes of horses with a fire behind them and it projects a shadow on the wall and those prisoners who have never left the cave and have never seen a real horse or a tree uh, think that that is reality. And of course, why? And this is a very epistemological example here of like, how do we know what we know? And so one prisoner is released and goes through a series of 
ascensions. He looks at the fire and looks at the puppets and realizes the shadows aren't real. And then he's drug up out of the cave, out into the, the daylight, but the sun is too bright. So he looks at the shadows and then he looks at his reflection in the water. And then he looks at uh, he looks at the trees and in, in the moonlight. And then only finally is he able to, after his eyes have adjusted after some time, able to look at the sun. And for Plato, this is all allegorical. The sun represents the good. The sun represents the world of forms. And it's so bright, he can't look at it for very, very long. And so even though it's a nice allegory that talks about epistemology and the nature of knowledge and the nature of reality, it also expresses this idea of forms where we move from very simplistic understanding of things to the highest understanding of things. The most simplistic is being down in the cave, looking at the shadows, where the highest understanding is, of course, being outside of the cave and looking at the sun. So it's kind of an example of this ascension, if you will, from simple to most complex and most true, right? Most true. So that's Allegory of the Cave. Another good example of the world of forms kind of an action, if you will, comes from Plato's Symposium, where he talks about or rather where Socrates talks about what he calls, well, not what he calls, what people have called over the centuries, the ladder of love. He talks about love, how that ascends. So give us an overview, Andrew. So Plato probably rightly identifies in the symposium that there's there's really different types of love that, that one can have. And there's different degrees of all of this too. And that'll make more sense in a second. But if we're thinking about this love on kind of a ladder-ish scale or kind of a upwards hierarchy pyramid, at the bottom, it's going to be things that are more physical love, where you're more attracted to someone, which he would call love on a physical level. This is the Greek term eros is used. And when we're kind of going up and up the ladder, that's moving more towards this ascendant or or spiritual love, where one is loving someone not for physical or emotional reasons, but they're really loving them because of their spirit, because of their thumos, because of their goodness, how close they are and and, and really how good they are. I think that highest form of love is called, it's agape, right? Agape is the the highest form of love. And eros, I think, is the lowest form of love. And if we're thinking about this in kind of a world of forms concept where we're thinking about Eros as kind of this very physical form of love and Gape as this high form of abstract or spiritual love, it kind of is almost, a, 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 we can see why Plato would value the, the spiritual or the Agape love more because it's not connected with the physical. It's not something that's temporary. It's not something that's going to wear out. The highest form of love, Agape, it's beyond the physical. It's a metaphysical kind of love where you're loving someone for their soul. And yeah, I don't think I have anything more to yeah. add there. Yeah. And then, of course, that, that final level of love, Plato says that it ascends to the good. And the good is just the highest form. So love, just like truth and, and beauty and justice, uh, all of it eventually you know, ascends to the good. The good is the embodiment of all of those things. Mm -hmm. One last quick example of how the world of forms manifests itself in some of Plato's theories is uh, on human nature. He talks about what he calls the tripartite soul uh, and that humans have three parts to them. And again, think of a pyramid that ascends. 
He says down in our hips area, in our hip areas, what we call our instinct or our urges, our animalistic urges that we share with the animals. And then around our heart is the what we call the emotions, right? Our feelings, our passions, things like that, that we also to a degree share with the animals. But the one thing we don't share with the animals, as far as Plato is concerned, is the ability to reason. And that's Mm. our brain, that's our mind. And the reason is able to control the emotions and is able to control our base urges and instincts. And so again, like you see this ascension, like a pyramid, and the top here is human reason. And through human reason, we are able to access Mm. the world of forms, right? So it just keeps showing up in example after example that Plato gives us. And it's no surprise, you can probably think about this, that a religion sprang up called Platonism based around this idea of hierarchy towards the good and that the good is the embodiment of of all virtues that is uh, that is good. And that why trust the body? Because uh, the body is physical and it, it can decay and instincts can lead us to do vicious things. And so we must appeal to this higher nature, this higher mm-hmm. good. Uh, and that's the world of forms. Well, let's discuss the famous quote by Alfred North Whitehead. You notice in the introduction, I said, English-American philosopher. You know, we, we Americans, we, we try to claim Alfred North Whitehead, <laughs> who moved to the United States to be a professor at Harvard, and I think it was 1924, and the vast majority of his major philosophical contributions were done in the United States and he died in the United Mm. States. But, you know, you Google him and and he's listed as a British philosopher. I don't know. You know, it's, uh, it's just, uh, up for grabs, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but anyway, who else is like, gosh, who wrote the wasteland? T.S. Eliot. Uh, T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Another, and he moved to London, so you know the British tried to claim T.S. Eliot, but you know he started out in the United States. We're like, no, he's ours. Anyway, intellectual property. But his quote that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode: "All of philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato." We would immediately pick on the "all," the usage of the word "all" in that quote. Yeah. But people get really twisted up about this quote when I bring it up. I don't know what's your thoughts on it, Andrew. I think it's true. I mean, yeah, you can get twisted up on all and, and whatever really you want to get twisted up on too. But I th- I would say that every philosopher from Aristotle onwards in the Western tradition is going to be in some way responding to, to Plato in an agreement or disagreement. Even in the Hegelian Marxism kind of context, there's, they're reviving the kind of uh, dialectic that it's not the same, but they're they're identifying that concept because they think it leads to truth. And so, it, you know, Plato wrote a lot. He wrote about a lot of things. We mentioned earlier that uh, mathematicians still use Plato, and it just really seems to me like it, it is all a response. Now, could it be all condensed to a nice footnote? Maybe not. Whatever. But <laughs> that you know, it's all building off. Plato is a he is foundational. He is the bottom plank in in Western philosophy. Yeah, his influence on methodology and how to do philosophy, his emphasis on metaphysics and epistemology is just is tremendous. Yeah. And whether or not all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato, I don't know. But you can't escape him. Yeah. 
there's no way that you can involve yourself in philosophy and not at some point have to contend with the ideas of Plato. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Plato rules. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many dialogues? Is this something like fifty dialogues we have? I can't remember. I don't know. I can get my book real quick if you'd like though. Oh no, it's okay. Let me see. Let me see. You can just Google let me, it. Let me Google it. Oh many dialogues. I mean one of the things is while you're Googling, one of the things that's interesting is that we, we do have so much of Plato's actual works. Some of the other philosophers will look at Epictetus. His students wrote down his dialogues. Aristotle, most of his primary works that he created on his own are lost. And, and what we have is his notes from students and stuff like that. Uh, but here we have Plato preserved uh, in his actual writings and the artistry and the beauty of his writing that goes into it. Is, is something we kind of miss out on when we could Aristotle or, or any other philosopher who we know via secondhand from students. Yeah, I think that's right. And he, okay, so you apparently wrote 35 dialogues that have been claimed to be by him, uh, by mm-hmm. Diogenes, Diogenes Laertes. I don't know. <laughs> but he wrote a book way back when called The Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers. And he he wrote out a list of, of these 35, and some of these are still questioned, and I don't know if that includes the epistles, the, I don't think it does, the, the, I think it's 10 letters by Plato that are first person, but there's quite a bit. Well, bottom line is, go check out Plato if you haven't. <laughs> He's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, like The Republic is a lot of students' entry into philosophy it's usually that or descartes meditations uh they're both very accessible and engaging so i encourage you to to get a a good copy of the republic or of course the uh the dramatic five dialogues of life or the uh, trial and death of socrates is also very engaging so any of those would be a great place to start with plato I don't know. Do you have somewhere else to tell them, uh, tell listeners to start with Plato, Andrew? No, I think I think that's probably a good place. Um, maybe um, if you're looking for one specific dialogue, check out the Crito. I, I really enjoy the Crito. I think that that's a really great place to start. It's very short, ten or fifteen pages. Really, really easy to read. Good introduction to Plato. Then maybe after you finish the five dialogues up front. Check out the symposium and then work your way to after the symposium. That symposium's fun. It also gives some background on Socrates and then go to the Republic and finish that one off. Then you probably don't need to read any anything else, but just finish that one off. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I feel like the Republic if you're you need to read that one if you're if you're interested in philosophy. It's a must read, but absolutely. And I guess I'll say as far as you know, as far as recommendations goes. There's a ton of Plato out there. Uh, you can go to used bookstores under the philosophy section, and there's always going to be used copies of Plato of something. And, of course, as famous and well-studied as he is, there are uh, publishing companies that will put all of his his entire collection into one volume, and you end up with this you know just massively thick book with paper-thin paper. and And that's great. But, you know, for me, I like to have a little, <laughs> there's Andrew's copy. It's huge. I like to have a little bit of smaller books with uh, some thicker paper and a little bit more margins so I can make notes in the sides and all that sort of stuff. So bottom line is, bottom line is, it's like third time I've said that. 
<laughs> All that to say, Play-Doh is packaged in many different ways. So, you know, if you do go shopping for Play-Doh, you know, if you want that entire collection, go for it. The, the Republic is always published in its entirety as a single volume. You can get the five dialogues in a single volume. So kind of up to you. Just don't get overwhelmed when you're when you're looking at them. You don't need to worry about the translation, but the Hackett one is pretty good. I think I think that's a the one a lot of people use as their f- first one, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, he's been uh, translated a bazillion times, so uh, and they're all they're all <laughs> they're all pretty good. Yeah, yeah, just go read the Greek. Right. I mean, that's what I recommend. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> all right, hey man, let's end this thing. So let's, uh, let's exit the world of forms <laughs> and come back to our untrustworthy reality let's do it of our senses the world of senses well all right everybody thank you so much for listening to our third episode in the series of the who was philosopher series uh, where we talked about plato today and next week join us for our final installment in the series of who was aristotle but i'm sure this will be a recurring series in in episodes to come later down the line but it's it's the last episode that we have planned in this little mini series right now so (laughs) make sure to check that one out that one's going to be great yep yep and be sure to check us out on our socials you know you love it twitter instagram and of course email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com if you have any questions that you would like for us to address on the show or if you have any questions about philosophy or the content of this episode we would love to hear from you oh and we also have a website opendoorphilosophy.com where we have all of our episodes in chronological order uh, also arranged by topic and by guests so oh and episode resources as well so uh, head over there and check out opendoorphilosophy.com yep sounds good I don't know why I said that. Um, thank you, Kevin McLeod, for the use of his music that we're playing right now. It's really groovy. Feel free to dance with it. Yes, yes. Dancing with philosophy is always recommended. I guess that's very Dionysian. Ah, oh, Nietzsche would be so happy. Stupid Apollonians. So boring and rational. That's right. Dance. Okay, well, anyway, everyone. Hey, I think that's it. Uh, And so, you know, remember, anytime your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. See ya. Peace. Thank you so much.